So pick, pick something else. And I was like, eh, I don't know. And my sister took me to recitals, you know, like I, <laughs> she took me to a tuba recital <laughs> and I was like, uh, no, <laughs> uh, but soon recital flute. And I was just not interested. I was more into sports at the time. I was just like, you know, this isn't going to work. I just like playing soccer. This is my thing. I mean, we have my Well, I think, uh, that's probably changed a little bit over the years. Uh, I think we are now more a group that will try to speak less at first and not try to work out the minutiae of things from the get-go, but try to get more of a feel for the piece of a bigger picture. So in terms of performance, yeah, I, I do think it's important to find different venues, different audiences, different repertoire, just all, all different stuff. Um, to just keep things fresh and um, and also to kind of stretch yourself. Nerves are constantly a part of things, but I've found that we are performing a lot in all sorts of different circumstances and just the practice of performing um, is so helpful. Um, the, the seventh time you play the same piece, the nerves definitely go down. Breathing, jumping around, dancing, and playing the same things a bunch of times keys to success. Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman. And today's episode is unusual because four musicians are featured, the members of the Euclid Quartet. They are a world-class string quartet celebrating their 25th anniversary with a fantastic album of short pieces entitled Breath. And we are featuring several pieces from that album as part of this episode. The link that will take you to all the places to listen to and buy this album is right in the description of this episode, along with their website. In this conversation, you'll get to know each member of the quartet, which is in residence at the Indiana University South Bend. Jameson Cooper, violinist and founding member originally from England, you'll hear about his experience as a student of Dorothy DeLay and Roland and Almeida Bemos. He also talked about the formative years of the quartet and the nuts and bolts of learning repertoire. The other violinist in the quartet is Aviva Hakanoglu, who holds degrees from Harvard, Indiana University, and Stony Brook University, and was a student of Philip Zetzer. And it was really interesting to hear about her experience auditioning for the quartet and her perspectives on community outreach and as an educator. Violist Luis Enrique Vargas is a longtime member of the Euclid Quartet and started his life in music in Venezuela at the age of 14 and spoke about introducing Latin American composers to his colleagues. Finally, cellist Justin Goldsmith is the newest member of the quartet. When he was completing his master's degree at Indiana University, he formed the Vera Quartet, which held residencies at both IU and the Curtis Institute of Music, where he was also a community artist fellow. I was curious to learn more about the many roles the quartet plays in their capacities as performers, educators, and collaborators, and to hear them speak about the special joys and challenges of being members of a full-time quartet. Like all my episodes, you can watch this on my YouTube channel or listen to the podcast on all the platforms, and I've also linked the transcript to my website, leahroseman.com. Finally, before we jump into the episode, I wanted to remind you that this is season four and there are well over 100 episodes you may have missed with a fascinating variety of musicians and that I'm an independent podcaster who needs the help of my listeners to keep this project going. And the link to buy me a cup of coffee is in the description. Now to the episode. Hi, good morning, Euclid Quartet. Thanks so much for joining me here today. 
Hi. So you are the first string quartet I featured on this series, and I'm so glad you could all join me. I think it's very cool. I mean, the string quartet is such an important ensemble and form of music, but not all my listeners will be familiar. Not everyone knows classical music. And I was thinking, you know, when I went to university, I had not experienced string quartets to that point and wasn't familiar with the repertoire. And I remember there was a jazz saxophone player who said, you don't know the late string quartets of Beethoven? Just go immediately to the library and listen to those. And it was so uh, mind-blowing to get exposed to that music. Jameson, you grew up in the UK. I get the impression there's a little more of a culture of chamber music for youth. Is that right? Uh, gosh, I don't know. I wouldn't say so. I mean, I, I really didn't have an awful lot of chamber music experience myself uh, and until I got to college. Uh, well, it sort of threw together the uh, second movement of the Barber String Quartet once with some buddies. And uh, um, we used to, I was in the National Youth Orchestra in, in England, and we would always try to have a get together and uh, smash through some things. And it, it was usually Mendelssohn Octave. Yeah. <laughs> we, we tried to tried to put together um but i didn't i wouldn't really say i had a, a tremendous amount of uh chamber music until i got to i didn't really have an awful lot there either but it, it was it was part of the course and uh, i certainly got my feet wet a little bit with quartets and trios and things there but um um i think there's more infrastructure here in the united states to support that activity actually than there, there is in england certainly nowadays i mean it's it's very difficult to in England now uh, for classical music the the business itself is dwindling I think more rapidly than it is here so um, yeah. anyway that said you know I, I certainly listened listened to the music and uh, I uh, I was interested in it and although I wasn't expecting that that would eat up my life but uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's the way it goes yeah yeah um, it's we're going to talk a lot about education and outreach, which is so important. But let's get into your beautiful album you're just releasing, Brev. And I love these kind of albums with short pieces. And certainly when I was putting together chamber music concerts, I'd always look for a short piece we could kind of add in there to balance things out. So I'm sure you have used these pieces not only as encores. I'm guessing you've also inserted them into programs. Did you guys have a lot of discussion around deciding what to put on this album? Um, I wouldn't say a great deal. I mean, I, these pieces have been in and out of our repertoire over the years, so uh, they were sort of naturally selected. We didn't really pick anything new specifically for the album, I don't think. They were all, all things that had been around before. Maybe the, uh, the, I think probably the Mozart, Adagio and Fugue, was the most recent thing that we picked up. Um, but again, it wasn't just for the album. We had we had played it before. Um, but I... Uh, uh, as as you, we, we've sort of uh, had them functioning sometimes as encores, but uh, very often it was uh, to try to just sort of change out the pace a little bit of, of a program, especially you know, if, you, if you're doing things like late Beethoven or Bartok six or something like that, and people just <laughs> need to okay, let's just have something a little fun there and again, and you know, so so we're not too full of ourselves the whole time, um, so. Uh, I think they, they've functioned in a, in a couple different capacities for us over the years, um, but you know they're they're all just pieces that are in, uh, dear to our hearts. So that we we want to give them the same love that we have some of the larger works that we we have in albums. 
I love to feature music early in an episode so people can hear what you're about. Now, there were a few pieces on here I, I was not familiar with. Um, Javier Alvarez wrote this Metro Tabacano. Luis, you were telling me earlier you had introduced the quartet to this piece. Yeah, so I had a street quartet before I joined the Euclid Quartet. So uh, it goes back to the time I was in Venezuela. Um, and we applied to several music festivals in the United States and also in, in Mexico. And uh, we actually ended up coming to the U.S. to the Roundtop Festival. Uh, I'm not going to say the year because that was many years ago. So. <laughs> but then we went to uh, uh, San Miguel de Allende and also Morelia, Michoacan uh, that year. So um, we were introduced, of, this piece was introduced to us by the Cuarteto Latinoamericano. And we got very excited about it, and then they suggested we learn it. So we actually worked with him, with them, with a, the, the couple of the members of the quartet, uh, and we really liked it. So it's a piece that it was um, originally composed to accompany a kinetic installation at a subway station. That's what metro means, metro. And there is actually a subway station, Metro Chavacano. I, I had to go to that one. I, when I was in Mexico City, I actually went to that station just to look at it. Uh, but it's, it, you, you hear it in the music. It's very much, um, well, like that, like it's kinetic. You know, there's so much motion going on and it's a little unrelenting, but very, very interesting. Very short piece that it's, uh, there's a lot of motion in it. So, so I, in, I introduced that piece to the, my colleagues uh, as, as well as a couple other Latin American pieces that we wanted to, to consider in our rep. So. You're about to hear Metro Chabacano by Javier Alvarez, who is one of Mexico's most important composers. He died in 2023 at the age of 67. All the tracks featured in this podcast are from the Euclid Quartet's album Brev, and you will find all the buying and streaming links at the link in the description. Thank you. 
Wonderful, thanks. I wanted to ask about this American Masterpieces grant that you guys received way back in 2009. So I'm guessing Jameson and Luis, you were in the quartet at that time? Yeah, yes. Um, it seems to me you guys were a little bit on the leading edge of um, awareness of representation and diversity in the music you're presenting and, and outreach with schools. Uh, well, it was, it was something we were sort of doing without any particular sociological intent behind it we, we just you know we, we had pieces that we happened to be playing that we you know we had a, had a friend who was a Puerto Rican and uh, we you know uh, enjoyed playing his music and we, we had this uh, piece by Jennifer Higdon and so we, we had a quite a cross-section of American composers that we had played and um, that happened to you know, come from various backgrounds and uh, different parts of society and stuff. So we uh, we realized when we, we were looking into uh, making these the school programs that hey, we we have something here where you know this is all American music, but it sort of shows the um, broad spectrum of what it means to be an American. You know, uh, so we had Asian American and. Latino and uh, African American, and we we just had a, a, a nice sort of cross section of music, and I I think we only actually needed to find a couple of other pieces to put in that program to feel like we'd represented, you know, as as many different uh, facets as we could think of. So uh, it, it sort of naturally suggested itself when we were thinking about this this um, idea of the educational program that would not only introduce people to great music, but also, you know, have 
kids thinking a little bit a little bit more about identity and how that's represented in music. Um, so it was a it was definitely a, a fun project to do. We we built a robot, uh, well a fake robot. It looked like a robot that, that spoke to the kids, and uh, they, they they were quizzed on different things, and uh, um, it was just a really really fun and uh, different endeavor for us at the time. And uh, it just turned out that yeah, a few years later, people were definitely thinking more along these lines in terms of programming for adults and uh, you know incorporating this music more regularly into concert programs than perhaps had been before. It was interesting when I was looking at what you guys do, thinking about what the career of a string quartet can look like, because I think that it was never, even when there were maybe more chamber music series and programs. I'm not sure how things have really changed, but I'm guessing there were never that many string quartets that could really make a living by performing and recording. So you guys do so many things and a lot of it does involve education. Uh, Justin, could you speak to that a little bit? I, I know you had background when you were at Curtis, you were a, like you did this outreach as part of that. Sure. Um, yeah, I think uh, the, the sort of uh, well-trod path for a long time for quartets was to just tour and record and that was kind of it you know there was uh, musicians always teach right but um it uh there were were and are still very few like uh faculty residencies for full string quartets um so you know i think we're, we're pretty lucky to be filling one of those positions at iusb um and you know i think Quartets in, in, you know, 2024 um, have to do a lot of different things in order to make it work. Um, I think there are still those very, very few groups who are able to, you know, make their entire career out of touring and recording. Uh, but even they, you know, I um, even those groups, I think, have teaching responsibilities and you know, do a lot of other things. Um, so I, th I think it's it's a good thing for quartets to be versatile. I think it's a good thing that the industry has forced quartets to be versatile. Um, and I think it's, it's just really important to, as an individual and as a group, um, be able to adapt to any kind of situation that you find yourself in, whether it's, you know, teaching, performing in some unconventional space, um, doing specifically outreach work, you know, all of that kind of stuff. There's, there's just so much that goes into what you do as a quartet that, that you have to be uh, very ready <laughs> for anything. I've noticed, you know, I'm in my mid fifties and certainly when I was in school, no one talked about outreach or playing in unconventional settings. And I've noticed a lot of institutions now, um, are encouraging students, they have specific programs. So Justin, you were involved with this thing at Curtis, right, this fellowship. Do you want to speak to that experience, maybe a memorable experience through that? Sure. Um, I think one of the most memorable things that I did during those two years was um, this huge citywide project in Philly called uh, Rehearsing Philadelphia. Um, uh, it was put in the sort of the brainchild of um, Ari Benjamin Myers, uh, like composer and sound artist um and uh the the scope of the project was actually enormous um i was involved in a couple of the um 
modules, as they were called. Um, and what we did was go to a gallery in town and set up ensembles that played like durational performances. So it was like four hours of music happening in the space and people could just walk through and, you know, there were some people playing Bach in a corner of the, of the gallery, you know, then there were some people like playing a piano violin duet somewhere else in the gallery. And then at certain points we would all come together and do something like, uh, clapping music by Steve Reich. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of a planned, but unplanned, um, musical journey for whoever wanted to walk through the space. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I think, um, that sort of programming is still like unfamiliar for me, but, um, but really, really interesting to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've heard of, of certainly a few things like that happening here in my city. It's, you know, we always, we always need to find new audiences, I think. And there's so many people who will love this music, but they just don't know it yet. Well, you know, um, I really love Wolf's Italian Serenade, and maybe we'll just play a clip of it because it's a little long, but I just, I love this piece. I've played it. So Aviva, was that a piece you'd played before you joined the quartet? Um, nope, I had never played that one before. Uh, definitely a, a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really um, technically demanding for everyone. Um, obviously, the first violin is probably the most in the stratosphere, but the second violin definitely gets its licks. Um, so yeah, that was definitely a tricky one to, for me to just jump in and um, kind of get in the fingers and get comfortable with. That's one of the things that recording really brings to light. It's it's never comfortable to, you know, live perform, but recording just really, oof, it's a, a mental journey. And if you're not already comfortable, really comfortable with the music you're recording, it can be quite the experience. This is an excerpt from Hugo Wolf's Italian Serenade. curious in terms of your rehearsal, rehearsal process, do you guys record yourselves often to hear back or is that just crazy making? We, sh we should yes. do it more than we do. We uh, used to do more of that actually. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, 
it can be brutal, but it's 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 a it's just a very fast track toward one that we should use more. So, so Justin, if I could <clears> ask, I'm curious because with the use of iPads now, do you guys ever read off the score just to make it easier to figure it out? Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, both on the iPad and off. Um, you know, the quartet over the years. Um, I've I've actually been in the group for even less time than Aviva, but um, the quartet over the years has put together a pretty large library of physical parts um, and scores. So we have those at our disposal. We can still go and reference them. And yes, we do all actually have tablets now, um, which is great. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, using the tablets and physical parts, it's all you know helpful. Um, for the rehearsal process. Yeah, I was just thinking because, you know, in the old days before we had that, to read off a score, there's just so many page turns. But if you're using a foot pedal, it makes it more practical in terms of figuring it out, just seeing it. Absolutely. I think, um, Aviva, I think sometimes you read off of a score, right? I think you may be the only one of us that does that. I'm... So, so Jameson, you were part of the quartet since the beginning. Yes. And I was curious if, if you want to talk to some of those early days, like you guys had a residency at Aspen or any of those formative experiences, how they impacted the quartet. Sure. Uh, the quartet began as a graduate string quartet at Kent State University in Ohio. And uh, we were there from 1998 through 2001, when the it actually became the Euclid Quartet. And during that time at the school there, we entered a couple of competitions and we were successful. We got a couple of prizes and that sort of encouraged us to continue with that professionally. We were very excited about it. So we, we got our first job in Sioux City, Iowa as a resident quartet of the symphony there. And there was a, a large educational component to our our work there, we did a lot of uh, cutting our teeth in that arena, and going out to prior, uh, elementary schools and middle schools and crafting different programs tailored to each different age range and uh, each sort of level of experience with the instruments. Uh, so we spent a lot of time with that and at the same time we were rehearsing like crazy in this little church that generously donated their space to us and we fought our way through Bartok IV and Brahms A minor and things like that and uh, we were uh, very aware that while we were lucky to have a job and you know we that was great we were getting paid to do what we wanted to do we still felt like we had a lot to learn and uh, we wanted to have more uh, performance experience outside of where we were living so we applied for the the Aspen Music uh, Festival Center for Quartet, Advanced Quartet Studies. And I think that was 2002 that we probably did the, I think it was January 2002, a freezing cold day in, in uh, Chicago. We went to Roosevelt University. <laughs> it's just blisteringly cold. And uh, we played for Earl Carlos from the Juilliard Quartet there. And uh, we'd ne never met him before, but anyway, we, we were fortunate to get a spot to go study there. Uh, that summer, and that, that was just an amazing experience because it was us with two other quartets, uh, great groups, and very inspiring to not only see them and um, have 
masterclasses with them, but to also see these other guest artists coming in to perform and learn from them. So that that was definitely a, a hugely formative experience for us as the quartet, and um, a, a completely different world from what was happening the year round for us. You know, in uh, in our daily activities there, because we were literally just focusing on repertoire and building our chops so we did we weren't doing anything else so it was a very focused time and it was it was a very special time in a, in a very beautiful place so it was it was great uh, so that we did that for two summers uh 2003 and four i think and oh two and three was it 2002 and three yeah and then uh, i think the other big educational thing for us around that time was the carnegie hall professional training workshops uh, that we did a week uh, with two other quartets of uh, intensive work on the even-numbered Bartok string quartets, culminating in performance there at Wild Hall. Uh, and the Emerson Quartet was with the coaches for that, and so we saw them every day and the hours and hours of time together with them. So, um, again, very intensive time, but just extremely inspiring and um Ultimately, that led to us recording all of the Bartok string quartets. So, uh, definitely an important part of our of our journey there too. Yeah, I was just thinking both violinists in the Emerson studied with Oscar Shumsky, I believe, as did I think Roland Famous that you studied with. Mm. Yeah, just legacy. It's always interesting to me that right, right, right. lineage. So, actually, you studied with some very famous teachers. Do you want to speak to any of that early education experience? Uh, sure. Well, I, I after I'd finished in in England, I came over to the United States to study with Dorothy DeLay. I, before the quartet, I went to Aspen on my own. Uh, so I studied with uh, Dorothy DeLay and uh, Masao Kawasaki. They sort of tag teamed, and uh, that was that was a dream for me because uh, I I'd, I'd grown up listening to Itzhak Perlman. I just loved his playing and you know idolized him. And so uh, I. I thought, well, <laughs> if I can get to see his teacher, then you know maybe I'll start to sound like one tenth of Isaac Perlman. So, um, so that was uh, very exciting to me to study with with them. And uh, after a while, I uh, then moved to Ohio, and uh, I was in Oberlin for a while. So that's where I met the Vamoses, Mr. and Mrs. Vamos there, and. That's what ultimately led me to Kent State University. It's mm -hmm. a long story, which I don't think your listeners probably want to know, but uh, uh, that it was from Oberlin to Kent State, and then, mm -hmm. boom, a Euclid Quartet happened. So. The Famouses are, are famous kind of because they're a couple that kind of tag team taught. How did that work? Did you like? Did they alternate? Was there a system? Uh, I would see. I alternated weeks with them, and okay. I would do primarily technical work with Mr. Famous. So I, I went through... All the Seth Chicks, all the Paganini Caprices, just a lot of notes with him, and yeah. uh, uh, a lot of uh, drier things too. But the Paganinis were more definitely fun. We were able to uh, you know, have a little bit of musical fun with that. Uh, Mrs. Vemos is uh, a very emotive teacher, I would say, and so uh, 
I'll always remember when you, like she, when she would demo, she she couldn't help herself, but she'd sing along at the same time as well. Uh, she's just so much coming out all the time. So that you know, I, I did primarily repertoire with with her and uh, I mean a bunch of pieces. I, I, for some reason, Prokofiev one is jumping to mm-hmm. to mind, and uh, Bakshikan as well. I remember working on that with her too. But uh, they were they were really complimented. They didn't sort of get in each other's way yeah. at all, uh, and they I think it it worked nicely that I didn't take the same stuff to each one of them. You know, I was doing these two things concurrently. Yeah, uh, it's interesting you mentioned Masao Kawasaki because his son Yosuke is our concertmaster who is also oh, featured right. on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, he scared me. Uh, not his son. Uh, <laughs> Masao was, uh, yeah, I remember him telling me once, uh, "You sound your violin playing sounds like you have a cold." I'm like, oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was definitely a, a little uh, drier than Mrs. Famous. Let's put it that way. But, but great. I mean, his, uh, you know, straight to the point, and always knew exactly what needed to be done to get it sounding better. And, and did you have that experience with Dorothy Delay that you'd have to wait in the hallway for your lesson? Cause she oh yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember being sitting in Juilliard for hours, and yeah. And then the, the, one day it was terrible because I, Sarah Chang was right before me. I thought, oh, come on, really? I've got to go out and follow Sarah Chang. That's not fair. You know. So I think I even said something to that effect when I came into the room. I said, okay, I know who you've just been speaking to and working with. Sorry, yeah. I'll do my best. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't Sarah Chang. <laughs> so um, another piece I was hoping to feature on this episode is the Shostakovich polka. You guys play it so well. It's such a cool piece. Would any of you like to speak to that? Yeah, the, the Shostakovich polka is one of the goofiest things that we've ever done. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a very funny piece to begin with, just looking at the notation even. It's just very strange and um uh you know it's got like that sort of shostakovich you know sardonic sort of sensibility but then it also has just pure slapstick in it which is very fun um and you know we found some things um you know that that uh perhaps are not in the score like um we had this idea to make the violins sound like um they started playing a month ago um at a certain point um and uh had a lot of fun with that um yeah it's just that that one was uh, a real blast to put together especially because it you know comes comes together pretty quick um but it was it you know it's a fairly simple piece to put together and then there's so much that you can do with it to make it even sillier than it is to begin with Hmm. interesting it doesn't sound easy to put together i mean you guys um there's so much life to it to your performance i think if you were to like play it with a metronome and you know just learn the notes i don't, I don't think it would be you know certainly compared to the wolf italian Saturday, you know it's a lot a lot less to deal with but i think uh, we did a lot of like jarring tempo changes and things that are not written in there just to try to amp up the the character changes so i know the just the bit that justin was talking about with the violins that like, we're written in minor seconds so it, so it already sounds bad intentionally, but then we like we played with no bow and I would try, and then we have this idea that it would be 
the story of this miraculous student that, uh, <laughs> within eight bars, suddenly learned how to do spiccato. <laughs> so uh, if you listen carefully, you hear that it, it, it exponentially gets better. Like, it starts sounding awful, and then we, we're like, yeah. we learn as we go. So we, we had fun with that silly story in the, uh, in the piece there. But, yeah. But. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could hear that for sure. This polka is from Dmitry Shostakovich's score to the ballet The Golden Age. Um, Aviva, if you could talk to the experience of joining an established string quartet and what that audition process was like. Sure. Um, yeah, so I joined the quartet. This is my third year. Um, and I don't know, un maybe unlike Jamie, um, quartet was kind of like what I wanted for 
basically as long as I can really remember wanting music to be a part of my life. I did a lot of it growing up as well. Um, and so I've always kind of been on the hunt for the job I have now. Um, so to primarily be doing string quartet and integrating, um, especially university teaching, um, that's been great. So when the job posting opened up, um, well, talk about lineage. Um, I shared the the mentor of um, the Emerson Quartet when I did my doctorate. I was at Stony Brook, so I was working with Phil Setzer and the whole Emerson Quartet very regularly. I was in a quartet there. Um, I continued in a in a different string quartet uh, out in Pittsburgh before joining this group. So I was really kind of gunning for that. Um, so Phil Setzer you know, <laughs> encouraged me, uh, and maybe, yeah, just like gave my name, and so I, I applied to audition. Um, and it's interesting, especially because the university is kind of overseeing the search. It, it's not just like quartet picks and you're good to go. Um, the audition process involved quartet, um, just jumping in and rehearsing together. They they told me a couple pieces to prepare both, both first and second violin parts. Um, then I also did some teaching demonstration stuff, some interview stuff. Um, so I think it's it's really like the whole package. It's, as Justin said earlier, versatility is really important. Um, so uh, one of the things that I think is especially really important for a university like Indiana, Uni Indiana University South Bend is the community aspect. Like it is designed as a commuter school for this area. So as part of our job, we are very much integrated in the community and in this area. Um, so that was something that I kind of, I think, brought to the table in my um, interview as well as um, something that I had done a lot of previously, both as an ensemble member, but um, just as a person. <laughs> um, so, so that was something that I, I introduced. But yeah, it's always really fun, um, you know, when you play with a certain set of people for an extended period of time, you really start to learn their mannerisms, you kind of can integrate. And so as soon as it's a different set of three people who've learned, you know, each other's mannerisms, it's a, um, a fun little, like, on-the-go puzzle. Um, and, you know, different personalities. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I had a great time at the audition, however nerve-wracking it was. Um, but, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting beast, I must say. What are your most effective tools, Aviva, for dealing with nerves? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> well, you will often find me jumping around backstage. Um, I... Meditation has been a really important part of my life um, for the past few years. That's something that I kind of do very regularly. So incorporating breathe, breath work and, and breathing beforehand. Um, I get really cold all the time. Um, so before performances is really tough for me. Um, but yeah, trying to find ways to stay warm. The jumping up and down is part of that. Uh, if there's a little more space, you know, maybe like doing a little dance. Um, so yeah, but yeah, nerves are constantly a part of things, but I've found that we are performing a lot in all sorts of different circumstances and just the practice of performing um, is so helpful. Um, the, the seventh time you play the same piece, the nerves definitely go down. Um, so yeah, and I think the more comfortable I get in 
you know, different spaces and with different repertoire. Um, that helps. So breathing, jumping around, dancing, and playing the same things a bunch of times. Keys to success. I was thinking about how, you know, uh, as an orchestral musician, when we do auditions, you know, it's all completely screened now. And of course, there's no interview. We don't even look at CVs. I mean, it's just how you play. You have those few minutes to prove yourself. It's so different in the chamber music world. It is. Yeah. I think there's, there's nothing more brutal than an orchestra auditions. For it. It's just, uh, I, I can't think of anything else in, in life in any other field that, that's quite like it. It's, uh, it's a very impersonal way of presenting something that has, has been your whole life very personal. Um, it's a very strange thing and you know how much of your personality do you let show you know or do you just want to get it right or do you do dare show a little bit of uh, your ideas on the things you know so it's, it's, a, it's a curious thing for sure and um, certainly in, in terms of quartet auditions it's a very different mindset from that you know because you're you are interested in not only how well somebody plays but the, the personality of that that, that newcomer, how they're going to work with you. Um, can you see yourself being in the same room hours and hours a day, every day? You know, uh, does it feel like it's going to work? And also, you know, how's that personality going to come across to others as well? You know, do you have a real live wire that's going to make you seem more sparkly, or do they seem, you know? So yeah, the, the personality I think is is something that is very much assessed in a chamber music audition and something that is pretty much an unknown in the orchestral audition setting. Yeah. Now, Jameson, you also conduct. I do, yeah. Not very well, but... So I, <laughs> how is that different in terms of being more of a boss? As well, I'm the boss in the quartet. Well. In the quartet. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I conduct primarily students. You know, it's, it's mostly that. So... You know, there's, a, there's a natural sort of hierarchy built into it anyway, but uh, I, I certainly try to establish a feel in the room where I'm open to suggestion. And, you know, while I will try to focus everything and teach, I, I certainly don't think I'm inflexible or things like that. So it's. Mm -hmm. I don't actually feel that far removed as a conductor from I do in chamber music, really. I mean, I, even physically, you know, I, I think of the way I'll, I'll give an upbeat with a baton is very much how I, you know, try to do it with a bow or the scroll or whatever. So I, I, I cannot say I consciously change, uh, other than the fact that students, you know, as opposed to colleagues. There's a slightly different way of speaking than there, but uh, it's it's not fundamentally different to me by any means. Is there frustration with not being able to make the sound? You know what I mean? No, I make plenty of sound the rest of the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I've never thought of that, actually. No, I sometimes get frustrated with what I'm hearing, and uh, sometimes I like, give me that violin. No, 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 more like this, you know, but... Uh, uh, no, I generally, I, I like conducting very much. I, we just did the local opera company here. We just did a production of The Merry Widow, and it's 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 really a, a, fu a fun experience for me to 
especially that where you know with the theatrical element as well you know it's it's mm -hmm. quite different and um, just gets different juices going I guess and having played the Haydn concerto with uh, Haydn C major with the IUSB orchestra last semester can confirm the vibe that that Jamie is talking about he does create that <laughs> Hi, just a short break from the episode, which I hope you're enjoying so far. If you want to check out over 100 episodes you may have missed, in addition to your podcast player or YouTube, I have an extensive website, leiaroseman.com, with show notes, transcripts, the complete catalog of episodes, and you can sign up there for my weekly newsletter to get access to sneak peeks of upcoming guests. Please do share your favorite episodes with your friends, follow me on social media, and share my posts. And if you can spare a few dollars to help support the series, that would be amazing. And you can find that link in the show notes. I'm an independent podcaster, and I really do need the help of my listeners. Now back to the episode. I have an interesting experience about that idea of conducting without hearing what you're conducting. I, I actually had to uh, learn conducting as well from our previous job in Sioux City, Iowa, both Jamie and I had to conduct a youth orchestra. But um, during COVID, uh, for a chamber music project, I, I, I had this idea to conduct the Adagietto from Mahler Symphony Number no. 5 on my own as I was whistling the entire movement. Uh, so I recorded, I videotaped myself conducting in front of the camera, whistling the entire thing. And then I had this idea to put together a group of students and myself following myself conducting and turn that conducting into actual music. Uh, so we, I had everybody record itself, themselves watching me conducting, including myself. It was pretty interesting. Uh, and then the final pro is like, wow, <laughs> that's what I thought about in the moment when I conducted that one Saturday morning, I woke up at eight in the morning, I just did it for fun. I was like, I would have done it differently, <laughs> but since I did it, it was just interesting, you know, like t timing what came in my mind at that moment uh, and hearing that what came in my mind at that morning made music. <laughs> it was very interesting. <laughs> Luis, I'm trying to understand, you were whistling the viola part? No, I was whistling <laughs> the entire part, like the, the, the melodies. Okay. I'm a, you know, I, I like to whistle <laughs> myself. So <laughs> something my colleagues uh, make fun of me about. Yeah, because I used to, um, I even consider interning a whistling competition. I was very serious about that. <laughs> um, yeah, years ago, I had a, a, a tooth broken and then uh, my whistling was actually pretty good until until I decided to cover that tooth and then it was no longer good. <laughs> I would like think about the entire piece, the melodic line, and then I whistle the whole thing. Okay. That's what I did. Before we leave this, I'm just, can you talk to the, the world of international whistling competitions? I'm kind of curious <laughs> about this. I actually don't know much about it. You know, uh, there was a competition back in... Man, I think it was, I mean, it, it, when I came to the United States, it was many years ago. And uh, as I say, that was back when I could whistle very well. Uh, but there is such a thing. If you actually do a certain whistling competition, there are amazing people there that can do amazing things. And one of the weird things that uh, I could do that I can't anymore is like with that hole in my tooth, I could do articulations. <laughs> which I can't do anymore. So um, I picked, I remember, uh, uh, Ruslan and Luzmila for uh, Glinka. 
and it's very fast, you know, very virtuosic. So, and I could do like uh, continuous breathing, just like an oboist could be uh, to do. So I could like whistle inwards as well as outwards. So continuously as I was doing the articulation. I mean, I don't know how I was able to do that, but I can't anymore. <laughs> That's very cool. Uh, there's a video on YouTube, Four for Tango, the Piazzolla, which is also in the album. Could we use some of that in this episode so people can see you play? Do any of you want to talk about that piece? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I would say, probably the most fun piece on the album. Um, it's, uh, well, okay, it's a tango, I guess. Um, but I think the unique aspect of it is what we get to do with our instruments. Um, I don't think any of the other pieces quite have this. So um, Piazzolla tries to get some effects that imitate a tango band, but he only has our instruments to work with. So he writes in things like drum or whip. Um, so, so we have these little effects that kind of achieve tango band-like things using just our string instruments. Um, so the viola has figured out how to do this drum effect very well. Um, but yeah, so, so it's just, we also have something like called sandpaper. So it gets this kind of like scratchy percussive instrument. Um, so it's, it's definitely a fun one. There's the tango bass, but there's also um, all of the effects that bring it to beyond the string quartet kind of sound world. Um, so that's a fun one. Wonderful, thanks. This performance of Astor Piazzolla's Four for Tango is from a live video of a performance at Indiana University's South Bend by the Euclid Quartet. If you're listening to the podcast version of this episode, the original video is linked in the description, and their other recording of this is part of their album, Brev.
Now, you guys recorded, um, what, I think your first recording was Hugo Cowder's uh, string quartet. Yep. That actually uh, was an interesting situation. Uh, so the, the Hugo Cowder Society put together competitions every year. Um, I don't think they do that anymore. But uh, the first competition they did was um, the string quartet competition to honor the music of the composer Hugo Cowder who was uh, a Jewish composer living in Vienna. And uh, beautiful music that he composed. But, you know, at the time the Nazis took over Vienna, he was able to escape uh, and migrated to the United States. So the foundation, the, so the society was founded in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, the family of the composer. And at the time uh, of the competition, the son of the composer was alive. Uh, and then, so we enter the competition. So you're supposed to perform a piece of the composer uh, plus something else. So we chose quartet number two of the uh, uh, by Hugo Cowder, and we actually won the first prize of that competition. And um, the son of the composer talked to me after the competition, and he um, he told me that actually the composer was a violist himself, uh, mm -hmm. and then he. I, I noticed immediately it's just the connection of the, the, the viola part. I mean, it's so beautifully written for the viola. And he was at a, he had an affinity with my playing. I, I, it was very beautiful talking to him. But anyway, uh, he invited me to be a member of the society, uh, the Hugo Calder Society. And as part of that relationship, uh, a suggestion came out to uh, do a recording 
of the the, the uh, at least I don't know exactly what they wanted. I, 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 we decided to do four quartets. Uh, the first four quartets of Hugo Calder, uh, we actually uh, uh, made a pro pro proposal to the society, and they uh, they actually uh, covered the expenses of that. So we recorded that. Uh, this was early years of the quartet. Actually, you know, we were still living in Sioux City, Iowa. So, um, yeah, our very first CD. Mm -hmm. Louise, did you start on violin like a lot of violas or right away on viola? Yes, I know. Uh, I did. I wanted piano. Actually, I was, I was interested in uh, a p being a pianist. Uh, my sister was a very committed pianist. I, we only had a piano in my house and she played seven hours, eight hours you know, a day. So my mom was like, you know, I don't think you should play piano she's not gonna let you practice. So pick, pick something else. And I was like, eh, I don't know. And my sister took me to recitals, you know, like I, <laughs> she took me to a tuba recital. <laughs> and I was like, uh, no. <laughs> uh, but soon recital, flute. And I was just not interested. I was more into sports at the time. I was just like, you know, this isn't gonna work. I just like playing soccer. This is my thing. I mean. We have my sister to be a musician in the family. Let's keep her, <laughs> keep her like that. But then, you know, like I started getting interested in music uh, more and more. And then actually my sister was my inspiration. Uh, that's why I started thinking about piano being my instrument. But then eventually she took me to a recital violin. And I was like, oh, I do like the violin. All right. So my parents bought me a violin and at the time you know there wasn't a teacher to teach me so there was a person who traveled from far and was constantly canceling lessons and i got very frustrated so eventually my parents asked well what could he be working on now well before his first lesson and he said well buy him the suzuki book number one and then i sort of taught myself <laughs> out of the pictures of the suzuki book you know watching the postures and all that. So for a month or a little over a month, I just self-taught <laughs> from, from the Suki book. And eventually I went to my first lesson. I was already 14 years old, uh, pretty grown up. And my, my teacher would say, you know, you should consider playing the viola. You know, you're a tall guy, you know, the, the instrument for full-size violin looks pretty small on you. I think you should consider playing the viola. <laughs> And there you go. I mean, within weeks, I was switched to viola. So my extent as a violinist was very short. <laughs> so. Okay. So Justin, you also joined the quartet. You're the most recent member. So what was your experience like, you know, switching groups and... So um, my audition experience was, was pretty similar to what Aviva described. Um, but uh, my experience, the, the reason that I applied for the job um, was, uh, so um, y'all remember 2020. <laughs> um, uh, so as, right as the pandemic hit, um, uh, two of my colleagues in my old group um, who were originally from Spain, um, they decided to move home to be with family and, and to you know create lives over there. Um, so, you know, my quartet, throughout the pandemic, my, my old group, we basically were, you know, half a quartet. <laughs> um, and, uh, it's, um, you know, 
that led me to think about the future and to you know look for stability and you know seeing um, an opening in a quartet that has had a 25 year career and you know that is pretty much the definition of stability within this very narrow field um that was something that was very attractive to me and you know coming out and playing with these guys was super fun um so you know it's it was a it was the right moment and the right opportunity yeah like the schubert quartet zats it's just so great and of course schubert's such an important composer for quartets would that be a good idea to include a little yeah, bit of that? Right. <clears throat> uh jamie do you want to talk to Schu schubert and what it means as a quartet player yeah music? sure i mean i i think uh, schubert's incredibly difficult to play uh, similar to beethoven it just it just doesn't, doesn't feel great a lot of the time uh, and i i specifically remember that this piece we, we learned this earlier on in the quartet days and i remember getting very frustrated with the dynamics because it, everything is like piano piano small triple b it's like well can we ever actually play anything? <laughs> so, I mean, you, you sort of, I guess, as you spend more time with things, you sort of make your peace with that, and you learn that, well, you know, you've got this range, and, you know, you present it here, there, or whatever, but it's more about colors and, uh, you know, the, the feel of things rather than a decibel level. So when we first learned it, I didn't necessarily think quite as well in those terms as I do now but I, I think what's you know who knows what what the rest of the piece was going to be like um, but what I love about it is that it really does work beautifully on its own because it's got such a range of uh, moods in it it starts with a very sort of energetic and uh, somewhat mysterious quality to it with a very fast um, build to a very dramatic um, Neapolitan moment and then uh, quickly then we get into this very singing song-like Schubert melodies that, that we all know and love uh, and it just weaves in and out of that and the, and the um, accompanimental textures are so uh, busy in this piece as well I think that, that, that's very interesting texturally that you've got this sort of slow soaring melody and underneath there's so much uh, bubbling activity there so it's uh it's it's one of the things on our recording that i'm most proud of because i think that i i feel that we've managed to accomplish those different textures uh, pretty well on that and uh i think i you know it, it fits our sounds well that piece so um i i enjoy playing it even though it still scares me <laughs> You're about to hear a short excerpt from Franz Schubert's Quartetsatz, which is a one-movement piece that is the only surviving movement of his uncompleted 12th string quartet. Thank you. 
Yeah, wonderful. Thanks. When you guys coach young quartets or student quartets at the university, what kinds of things did you find they have the most trouble learning? Well, uh, it feels like after a while, you you know, you do it day in and day out as a professional quartet. You sort of forget about some of the things that you take, you know, you take certain things for granted. Uh, and it's always surprising to me how cueing has to be taught. I, you know, it's just, and again, as a conductor, you know, I, I, I just do a lot of that kind of thing anyway. Uh, but to actually have to verbalize what it means to cue somebody, and what, what is the information you are trying to impart with that gesture? So that's a challenge. And then some people just physically don't do that well. You know, some people it's very natural. I, I teach conducting class uh, here at the university, and, and I see that a lot. Like some people, it just it goes, and others, it's just the coordination of the physical motions is, is very difficult. Um, so that, I would say that's, that's probably the thing that I was, uh, I'm a little taken back by. Uh, with a group that is just not naturally getting that and uh, having to talk through it and have them try different things so they find a physical language that makes sense for the music they're about to play um, is always interesting. Do any of you find with students that they sometimes play early to their own cue or late to their own cue, you know what I mean by that? We still sure. do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think also go, um, going back to um, like the very beginning of what what we were talking about today, um, like the infrastructure of chamber music and like how it how it happens for kids, you know. Um, I think one one of the things that I feel like we have to deal with a lot is um, chamber music as sort of an afterthought um, in music education. Um, you know, generally like kids get lessons and play an orchestra when they're like serious about their instrument, right? Um, and I think that chamber music often is sort of like tacked on as just like something to do. Um, and I think that what that sometimes leads to is like not really knowing the part, not really knowing the score and kind of just playing, just playing, you know? Um, yeah. And, and I think, um, it's, it's hard to impress upon people like young people who are already busy with tons and tons of stuff, the importance of like treating this with the importance that we think it deserves. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's, uh, that's actually like one of the hardest things I think to deal with because, you know, it is something that we devote our lives to and we think that it deserves that kind of treatment, that kind of importance. Um, and you know, that's just not true for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was in university, it was always such a struggle to get people to actually rehearse between the coachings because there was just so much, you know, so much pressure to do everything else and, of course, practice for your teacher. But it's all about the rehearsing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You guys did a cool piece. Uh, the Anna Did Anna Klein write it for you, the Concerto for String Quartet and Orchestra? Yes, that was uh, very recently. In October, we did the, the premiere. And it was the Fischoff National Chamber Music Association's 50th anniversary year. And so they wanted to commemorate it by uh, commissioning a piece which spoke to their mission. So they wanted to involve 
obviously chamber music have a representation there, but also community um, organizations, including the local symphony, South Bend Symphony. So we uh, we were fortunate that Anna Klein was able able to write this piece for us. Uh, so it's a string quartet concerto, four movement concerto, and uh, it was uh, based on the Four Seasons. Um, not in the same order as the Vivaldi, and uh, it was it was really cool. Like texturally, it's a very interesting piece. That the way she uh, works that the combination of the quartet or with the orchestra or the quartet standing in relief, it was uh, it was a really fun thing to dive into. And luckily, she was able to come out to the premiere as well. So uh, she got to work with us a little bit and listen to it, and a good time was had by all. I was thinking if there's more repertoire like that, do you think it would help bring like symphony audiences into uh, you know chamber music concerts if they are not already? That's, that's a good question. I mean, it really doesn't feel like chamber music. I think that's the yeah. thing. You know, it's. Uh, I think you know it, it might get audiences interested in the personalities of that group, but I, I don't think it, you'd have any sense that oh, I like this. Well, maybe I'd like a Mozart quartet. I, it just feels like quite a different animal to me. We did actually, uh, the, the first half of that concert was just us alone, so uh, the, maybe that concert functioned <laughs> in the way you described it. I don't think that, that piece necessarily would. So what kind of unconventional concerts do you do or settings do you do as a quartet? I would say largely it's been like collaborative things um, that aren't necessarily like, oh, a natural thing that you'd think about if you think of quartet. Um, one thing is on my mind because it's upcoming um, is we're collaborating with a, a librarian who um, has an ongoing story time um, series program for, for young kids. Um, so I've worked with her a couple of times on pairing different children's books um, with different pieces of music or excerpts from the com a, a certain composer to tell a certain story that's really, really um bite size and and you know user friendly for a four-year-old um but it still kind of gives you a sense of oh wait people you know there is storytelling naturally involved when you are playing chamber music um so that's been really fun um last year there was a well the book came out a couple of years ago but on the life of florence price mm -hmm. and the book was written by actually school-aged children um and so we kind of combined that book with a dr seuss book on emotions with the music of florence price and kind of integrated that and so this was in this storytelling space with like the cute carpet and the kids sitting on the letters um and so that was really fun and we're going to do an another one in two weeks um and so that will be more about dancing and and um you know w like what kinds of forms dancing will take and we'll use not just one composer's music but so that'll be an another window of like giraffes can't dance i don't know if you're familiar with that one but um so it, it just it invites kids to feel like they can dance they can play music if one piece doesn't speak to them another piece might um so that's been fun we've also done like a name that tune kind of a thing that gets into the video game world at the um well this was also the library but a different kind of cross section of the library's um goers so we did like a kind of 
trivia style um, little playing of excerpts um, in this like kind of tech space of the library, this Studio 304. Um, so those have been really fun. Um, Were you playing video game music? We were, yes. Um, yeah, Justin, I'm sure can talk a lot about video games, um, but he put together some arrangements for us um, so we could use those. Um, and, you know, some of them were obvious and some of them really catered to the, um, y- you really have to love video games to recognize this particular tune and this particular, like, I don't know, scene of a game. I'm, it got really specific. Luis, you had something you were going to say. Yeah, I just remember uh, one of the things, one of the reasons. Well, okay, so when we learned about the Anna Klein project, we we wanted to book something by Anna Klein in in one of our quartet uh, concerts at IUSB. And then we we put a piece by her that it's with electronic music. And that was very difficult to do, actually, uh, playing along with um, a recording and being mic'd that was very unusual for us there was a whole preparation that was to be done you know with the microphone setting and all the stuff the sound uh, of the quartet uh all the projects that we've done actually we a few years ago we did a concerto for kyoto and quartet it wasn't a concerto but it was a i don't know if jamie remembers but it's a piece for quartet in Kyoto, a Japanese Kyoto. Uh, and it was played by a very famous Kyoto player from Japan. Uh, that was very cool. Uh, and also another very interesting project that we did uh, through the Carnegie Hall relationship after the, the, the thing we did with the Emerson Quartet. We were asked to go back to New York to do um, a piece which is it was written for a uh, for children as a story that, that we will play the music of the story so as the kids were watching a video of the story we were actually the music as we were playing so a little bit like old times movie theater you know with the organ playing and uh silent mu- movies so that was really difficult to do to try to you know coordinate exactly with what was happening up in the screen that's very unusual i mean we do that as an orchestra but we depend on the conductor how did this work in the quartet we did not have a conductor so we had to really be very attentive of what was happening but obviously there are two members of the quartet were completely giving the back to it so those who were uh more able to like Jamie for instance was able to watch being the sort of the cueer like cueing the quartet as mm. whatever's happening so he was constantly watching up there what was happening I forget Justin in your quartet do you sit with the cello on the outside or inside <laughs> so um I grew up sitting on the inside um and that was always my preference for a long time um I uh with my old group um, with with the, the Spaniards, you know, they they had a more European sensibility, and so I, I sat on the outside there, and I grew to understand that, and like you know, have a um, a way of doing things that I think worked, um, and now we're doing that here as well, mm-hmm. um, and I think um, it 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 does kind of feel good to sit on the inside in the sense that you're facing outwards and you can feel like you're projecting more directly 
Um, I, um, you know, at the risk of uh, being hubristic or whatever, uh, I believe that I have a large enough sound that um, I can sit on the outside and I don't have to worry about projecting directly at the audience in that way. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fine with either way. And, um, you know, it with when we were talking, when I first joined the group, um, I sort of, we, we brought that up and, um, I'm, I'm fine with either way. And, and I think Luis wanted to try it, um, sitting on the inside so that, you know, the, the classic problem of viola sitting on the outside is that you always have to like yeah. doing that. And, um, we wanted to try to do that a little bit less. And I think, you know, we're, we're feeling good with it yeah. for now. <laughs> I, I always prefer having the, the cellist on the outside because it seems to me the second violin and viola, it makes so much sense to be close to each other. And I never understood why the violist has to be twisting. And yeah, the cello is such a big instrument. So, But so many cellists I've played with are like, no, I sit on the inside. That's the way it goes. And I think it's this projection idea. I don't, I'm never quite clear on this, but it's amazing what a difference just a foot can make, right? <laughs> the whole meant, you know, your emotions of what's going on. And <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, in the end, I don't think it makes an enormous difference in the sound. I think it does make a difference in the sound. Um, I think it, it, the the choice should, yeah, the choice in my mind should come down to what makes the players feel most comfortable. Yeah. Um, and in, in this case, it is cello on the outside. So if you guys want to think about the rehearsal process, if someone wants to speak to that, just like when you're, we have a new piece, let's say, well, I think uh, that's probably changed a little bit over the years. Uh, I think we are now more a group that will try to speak less at first and not try to work out the minutiae of things from the get-go, but try to get more of a feel for the piece of a bigger picture than perhaps we used to. So first couple of rehearsals, you know, if we're doing oppo and that person's doing dambo, right? okay, fine, we'll figure it out later. But it just, you know, things like the overall architecture of the piece, the, the tempos, things like that, those are the sort of bigger picture things that we'll try to, try to just let those naturally find their way into our system by just, just playing and not gassing so much, you know? <laughs> and then once you know it, then of course, then you start getting into the uh, more detailed things of how, how do you really clean it up, you know? But I, I think it's like, uh, you know, you're coming from uh, a great height and then you're moving closer and closer and closer in towards this. So you're finally able to see, it's like on Google Earth when you can zoom out and then you can come back in. And, so we start in space and uh, arrive at an upbow in great detail. So, so Luis, I'm curious, like we talked a little bit about what a string quartet uh, career looks like. And looking back, if you guys had been able to be a quartet, maybe like the Emerson or one of these big names that was really relying on touring a lot, but that would have affected your personal life and the way, you know what I mean, in terms of your day to day, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a compromise that you had to make. Uh, particularly, I mean, if you're on the road so much of the time, I mean, if you have other commitments, like teaching particularly, uh, that could be rescheduled. I mean, a lot of the time that could be done. Uh, 
like like private lessons and things like that could be done but there are classes in-person classes that you can't really do much with so being on the road all the time it's a little challenging when you have a residency a teaching residency so but it's uh yeah i mean there are a lot of justin was talking about that that there's that exist i mean there's a niche i mean there's groups that live purely off of just performing only and it's very impressive it's very impressive that they could do that but do you think it puts more pressure on the quartet interpersonally because it's so much all together? Possibly. I mean, I, I, I would say I know that there are quartets that have had to take their time off when they're <laughs> traveling and they, were, they mm -hmm. do their own schedules and, you know, like they travel separate. I mean, we, we go back to the ordinary quartet, I guess, <laughs> and then yeah. they just simply meet on the spot, just break the concert and goodbye. I don't see you until next concert. I mean, obviously there's personal issues that go along with uh, being 24 seven, the whole time, you know, sharing time, you know, your personal space. And uh, obviously that could be challenging. I guess imagine it hasn't happened to us. I mean, we seem to have a lot of fun when we're traveling. <laughs> but that's what I'm thinking because you're not traveling all the time. So it's more yeah. special when you, when you tour, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So Aviva, uh, maybe if you could reflect on your role as a teacher, what kind of things do you think are most important to work on with your violin students? That is very dependent on the student. Um, I will say in my capacity, just generally teaching, because I don't only teach violin, especially at IUSB, um, like listening to the specific needs and learning styles of students one-on-one um, -on -one, sure chamber groups yes classroom setting as well um, that is very interesting especially for me as someone who like I've done a lot of schooling um, and so I, I know that my learning style is very different from a lot of the students who I do mm -hmm. teach um, so coming up with like creative ways and multiple ways of presenting information whether it's a technical skill whether it's music historical information um, whether it's kind of like an ear training concept whatever it is um, so yeah I think the finding multiple ways of expressing a concept that either it's like becoming ingrained and I don't even think about it so I have to think about it or something that I'm struggling with currently and so it's really on my mind and I'm working through it and then I kind of am also working through it with a, with a student um, yeah and then I think the other thing is this probably goes for whether you're a student or not, the more invested you feel in something, the more committed and motivated you are to, to work on it. So finding ways, understanding what motivates students just in general, what is of interest to them, and finding ways to connect a concept you're trying to teach to that, I think goes a long way um, in just kind of getting everyone to the same level of desire of you know understanding something um so yeah i think that goes goes to the listening side of things um yeah oh, beautiful ah uh, justin okay so uh what should we talk about um <laughs> you know maybe it'd be interesting just to reflect we talked a little bit about uh presenting concerts in different ways and what do you think about that in terms of burnout as a performer like just being able to think outside the box 
I think burnout um, is kind of a, a, a hard topic um, to discuss, not just because it's like sort of touchy, but also because it's different for different people. I think, um, you know, it is possible to get burnt out of just performing. Um, it is possible to get burnt out of anything if you just do it a lot. Um, so I, I do think that, um, finding variety in the types of performances that you do, um, is, is an important thing. Um, and, and not just to avoid burnout. I think, um, you know, I, I, I said this before, but I really value, um, versatility and like being able to go into any kind of performance situation or teaching situation or anything like that, um, and be able to do what you need to do. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, of course in, in terms like avoiding burnout is something that I think we all want to do. Um, and I think that finding variety in, in the activities that you do is probably one of the best ways to, to do that. Um, so in terms of performance, yeah, I, I do think it's important to find different venues, different audiences, different repertoire, just all, all different stuff, um, to just keep things fresh and, um, and also to kind of stretch yourself um, so that you don't kind of get stuck in your particular mode of doing things. Well, thanks so much for your perspectives. It was a thrill to meet you all today and to be able to do this with the whole quartet. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share this with your friends and check out episodes you may have missed at leahroseman.com. If you could buy me a coffee to support this series, that would be wonderful. The link is in the description. Have a wonderful week.